Salve and salutations. My name is Charles Chestnut, this is Storied History, and this story is about the Battle of Silverload. Before I do get started, I would like to say that this is a little bit of a placeholder. This is a real story, or at least this is a historical story that has probably been uh, polished and embellished uh, over the decades. And it's not the history of Mexico, which was supposed to be the next episode, but I am deep in the arduous task of unpacking after a big move. I bought a house, I'm moving in, and the unpacking procedure is just taking uh, a lot longer than I had originally anticipated because I'm trying to do everything correctly as I do it. So instead of a slap hazard procedure, it is just taking more time. I promise I'll be done probably within a few weeks and I will be finishing up the history of Mexico in the next episode. So thank you for your patience. So this story is about the conflict between a mining town and uh, the regular town in Utah where the Mormons were moving in and trying to put a damper on the mining activities. And it begins in a place called Price, Utah. Price City, Utah, or sometimes just Price, Utah, is located in central Utah. It's a typical small town, I suppose, in America. It's about 8,000 people. The area it is situated is fairly flat, although it does run up against the mountains. And it's the history of this little town that is so interesting. Or at least this one aspect of their history. All right, now just to set the stage to provide the context for what's about to happen, this is Utah when it was still a territory. This is before it actually became a state. Now the railroads had come through. In fact, the first transcontinental railroad went through Utah, uh, not too far away from uh, this little town, in 1869. And this is approximately 20 years after that. This was a mining town originally. The reason that this particular area began to attract people was because silver was discovered, which is why the mine was called Silverload. Now, the Silverload mining camp that sprung up happened very quickly, as was normally the case with mining towns. When there was a silver or gold or copper strike, people would come out of the woodwork, so to speak, and settle incredibly quickly in these little areas to try to find their fortune, to make their money pulling the metal or the minerals out of the ground. The vast, vast majority of these miners did not become rich. They would be paid low wages, although decent wages for the time, given the fact that this was just simple manual labor. It was the mine owners back east that usually pocketed all of the profits from these mining towns. The other group that made a lot of money off this were the saloon owners. These were the men that actually owned the brothels, the flop houses, the saloons. This is where you could drink, gamble, and negotiate for the affection and attention of a young lady. Or sometimes not so young lady. These were dens of iniquity, shall we say. And the people that didn't like this were the other settlers in Utah at the time, and that would be the Mormons. 
Mormonism is a religion that was started in America in the 1820s. The Mormon church is based out of Utah because the Mormons themselves were sometimes forcibly expelled from the eastern states, sometimes unofficially and a few times officially. In 1838, they were actually forcibly expelled from the state of Missouri. Or, as some might refer to it, Missouri. As one old Mormon once remarked, I'll be deep in the cold, cold ground before I recognize Missouri. Not really. That was Grandpa Simpson from the TV show. But the Mormons settled in Utah. And when they did, they brought their somewhat strict view of morality with them. So the conflict between the Mormons and the mining community was, in some senses, just inevitable. This was going to happen at some point. And the spark for this particular story, this particular event, was a man named Will Fitzgerald when he acquired a newspaper. Will Fitzgerald was an Irishman that owned the White Horse Saloon in Silverload, just outside, on the other side of the tracks, really, of Price, Utah. He was a gambler. He was a gunfighter. He was a man that understood that the only way to make money in a mining camp was not to mine, was to sell whiskey and women to the miners. So that was his primary goal, make money in the saloon. In fact, he had acquired the White Horse Saloon in another poker game a few years before. So several years of silver mining in this town had made Will Fitzgerald a very rich man. And one night, late, late one night, he was playing poker against the man that owned the newspaper in town. Now, this is a small-ish newspaper. This is not a large, ongoing concern. We're not talking about the New York Times. The Advocate had approximately 1,000 subscribers for the town and the surrounding areas, each one paying about $5 a year to get the newspaper. On this fateful evening, Will Fitzgerald goaded the owner into betting his newspaper in the poker game. The details of which are not actually that important. Basically, Will Fitzgerald won the newspaper. And when he did, he decided to make a change. Now, this change was made simply because his focus was money in the saloon. Now, before he took over, the previous owner had kept a neutral approach to the Mormons and the Mormon church, and specifically polygamy. He wanted as many subscribers as he could get, and so he did not choose to address some of the issues that revolved around the Mormon church. On the one hand, you did have polygamy. On the other hand, the same Mormons were absolutely opposed to vice, to wine, women, and song, definitely whiskey. And this tension between the two groups would be very difficult to navigate if you picked one side over the other. You were going to alienate the other one, so your newspaper may go under. But Will Fitzgerald didn't care. He was making huge amounts of money in the saloon, and all he wanted to do was to keep his customers happy, to stir up more customers and more gamblers if he could, 
and maybe just to have a little fun because as a very, very wealthy man who had spent his younger years traveling around the West as a gunfighter and a gambler, he was getting kind of bored. So on June 6th, 1882, the new edition of the Silverload Advocate, Dave Powell, editor, he was the old owner, and Will D. Fitzgerald, publisher, had this to say. And I'm going to summarize, I'm not going to read the whole editorial, but the last paragraph essentially says, We demand a halt to the use of a religious tenet to sell into legalized prostitution American womanhood. We demand an end to this Mormon practice of breeding bastards. We demand imprisonment of every Mormon polygamist and the freeing of their so-called wives from bondage. Now, obviously, that is very strong language and is, without a doubt, exaggerated to the point of being just lies. Polygamy may not be legal, and you could argue about the morality of it, but it, it was not legalized prostitution. And that was a little rich and hypocritical coming from someone that owned a saloon that had a lot of women who essentially had negotiable affections, shall we say. In fact, Will Fitzgerald's companion was one of those women who stopped doing that and became his and his alone. And hey, more power to them. I'm glad they were happy. But to attack the Mormon polygamists for legalizing prostitution when you are operating a cat house with prostitutes is a little hypocritical. But it didn't really matter. He was just trying to stir up trouble to try to get attention to his saloon to have a little fun. Well, the Mormons didn't think it was funny. The first thing that happened was, of course, all of the Mormons canceled their subscriptions to the newspaper, which Will Fitzgerald did not care about. But that was not enough. He kept on doing these things. He kept on publishing editorials and criticisms of the Mormons. He kept repeating lies that were told about the Mormons. And this is only a few decades past the point where Mormons had been expelled from some of the eastern states, and there were pitched battles between Mormons and non-Mormons. So these kind of accusations really did strike home, and they were rather worried about the consequences. So the Mormons had a meeting. Mormon Bishop, uh, Bishop Aiden said that he had a plan, not just to get rid of this problem newspaper, but to empty out the den of iniquity and vice that existed just on the other side of the railroad tracks outside the mines of Silverload. And the plan was legal. They were going to elect a new sheriff, a new judge, new county treasurer, all county commissioner, all of the local elected positions were going now to be filled by the Mormons, or that was their goal. So they created a party. And they called it the People's Party. And the People's Party was against gambling. It was against all forms of alcohol. It was against negotiable affection. And it was not treated seriously. Because this small town, Price, Utah, was not very big. It only had about two or three hundred people. Silverload, the mining town, had somewhere between 700 and 1,000. And they all really enjoyed the whiskey and the women. 
So obviously the People's Party was not going to do very well. Will Fitzgerald treated this whole thing like a joke, because why wouldn't he? So he created his own party. He called it the Liberal Party. And they had competing announcements in the form of handbills and leaflets being passed out, speeches on street corners. The People's Party declared that if elected, they would stop all gambling in the county and end the trafficking of women and negotiable affection. The Liberal Party responded that if they were elected, they would ban the making of Dixie wine in that county. Dixie wine was a... It's what the Mormons used to have communion. So to say you're going to outlaw Dixie wine would mean that they couldn't have communion uh, in their church. These escalated to the point of slight absurdity, culminating in the last exchange, which had the Mormons claiming that they would outlaw all dance hall girls in the entire county. When asked how this would happen, they responded with all female employees would be outlawed. You weren't allowed to work if you were a woman. You might ask, well, why not just outlaw women from working in the gambling halls and the saloons? And the answer was, well, they were going to ban those as well. No gambling halls, no saloons, no whiskey, and no women working of any kind. The Liberal Party, with Will Fitzgerald, responded that if elected, they would force all Mormon females to wear chastity belts with a single key for each belt to be held by the sheriff and to be presented to a Mormon male only if he could produce a marriage license for a one-time event, and the key must be returned to the sheriff by morning. This goes on for a few weeks. Tensions did not run high simply because the Gentiles, the non-Mormons, did not believe that anything was going to happen. They thought this was one gigantic joke. They outnumbered the Mormons three to one. Obviously, they were going to win. And obviously, otherwise we wouldn't be telling this story, they were wrong. So when Election Day came around, all of the miners and all of the gamblers and everyone that lived in Silverload went out to vote. And that's when they noticed that there were a lot more people there than they had anticipated and they were almost all Mormons. Bishop Aiden had brought in Mormons from all of the surrounding settlements under the cover of darkness and then brought them in without being noticed by the election officials. When the election was held and the votes counted, the People's Party, that would be the Mormons, had won by 42 votes. Every single Mormon candidate won. And all of the new elected officials were beholden to Bishop Adden. And they did what they were supposed to do. Now, the most important one is Hank Jeffers. Jeffers was a gunslinger before he became sheriff. This was not uncommon back then. Even some of the storied and amazing heroes of the Old West, like Wyatt Earp, were gunslingers before they became lawmen. Gunfighting was not illegal. You could fight if you wanted to in the street. The only time it was illegal 
is if you shot someone in cold blood. But if two men decided that they were going to try to see who was faster with a gun, that was legal. And so the fastest ones survived, and the slow ones didn't. Hank Jeffers was one of the fast ones. And so was Will Fitzgerald. Both of them hoped that they wouldn't have to face each other. Hank Jeffers was in this little town because Brigham Young himself, the founder of the Mormon religion, had sent him there when requested by Bishop Aiden to bring someone who was capable of enforcing the law and keeping drunken people under control. And he did. In the first year, he was stationed there. This is before he was elected to be sheriff. He killed eight different men on separate occasions. He was a man that was well capable of gunfighting. So Hank Jeffers enters Silverload alone and starts putting up signs and notices around the town, informing everyone that they were keeping their election promises and all gambling was forbidden in the town, effective at 8 o'clock the next morning. The next day, the next morning, Jeffers wore his guns, went into Silverload, and promptly arrested Uncle Will and everyone else who worked in the White Horse Saloon. During the rest of that day, he then arrested all the other saloon owners and brought them into jail. The new judge, who had just been elected, fined each of them $200 and released them. The only place there was any resistance was in the middle of town. There was a very small gambling hall that was actually just in a tent rather than a wooden building. And a man named Snake Wilson said that he would not be arrested and dared Hank Jeffers to go for his guns. Jeffers did, and Snake Wilson died. The next day, the same thing happened. Will Fitzgerald and all the other owners were arrested. This time, the judge doubled the fine, $400. And he informed them that every single day that they were going to be operating a gambling establishment, the fines would double. So they had a little meeting, the owners of the saloons, trying to figure out what to do. Will Fitzgerald was informed that the main thing that they wanted was for him to give up the newspaper, to the one that had caused so much trouble. If he did that and turned that over to the Mormon church, or at least to be run by a Mormon, then there would be no more problems. Will Fitzgerald responded, I'll be damned if I'll do that. I'm damned if I'll kowtow to those Mormons. You leave me no alternative. I'm going to send word to Jeffers that if he steps foot into Silverload tomorrow, he better be wearing his guns. All of the saloon owners and the former judge, the former sheriffs, all told him that was insane. If you kill a duly elected sheriff, they will ask the central authority for martial law. They will get it. And then you're going to have to deal with with the United States Army. So Will Fitzgerald backed down. He said he wouldn't do that. But what are they going to do? They've got to do something. The most powerful men in this little group were the saloon owners, but also the men that ran the mines. And they knew that if they didn't have gambling 
and whiskey and women that all of the miners would go somewhere else. There were other mines, other places they could make money pulling metal out of the ground, places where they could still spend their wages on wine, women, and song. But what could they do? It is almost certain that this election was conducted with fraud. Bringing in Mormons and settlers from all the surrounding counties to vote in this particular election almost certainly was done. And if it was done, that's illegal. You can't do that. But to petition the central government of Utah, which was not a state at this point, was essentially futile because they were would not rule against the Mormon church. And to petition the federal government would take an incredibly long amount of time. And by that time, all of the miners would have left, the saloons would have been closed down, and they would have gotten their way anyway. So they came up with another idea. This is essentially the only possibility that they had. They were going to demand that all of the new elected officials were sworn in and by taking the expurgatory oath. The expurgatory oath was legal, and it was an oath that essentially said that they solemnly swore that they were not a bigamist or a polygamist, and that they had never violated or supported anyone who violated the laws of the United States prohibiting polygamy. That they did not live or cohabit with more than one woman in marriage, or does any other relation exist between them and any other woman which had not been into or continued in violation of the said laws of the United States prohibiting polygamy and bigamy. Now, if they do this, it's going to disqualify almost all of the Mormon candidates. And if, it had, if that had been done when the votes were being cast, as it was supposed to have been done, then easily the Mormons would not have had the votes to do it. So you could argue election fraud, and it's a very convincing argument, but it's going to take a while to actually hash that out. Will Fitzgerald writes another special edition of the newspaper, one page, and he distributes this throughout the entire mining town of Silverload to everyone that would listen. And they all did, because now you're not just messing with his livelihood, you're messing with the livelihoods of all the saloon owners and the enjoyment and the life, the sense, not, not the living life, but the life they choose to live, all of the miners. So they were all on his side. I call upon the citizens of Silverload to rally around the flag at the White Horse Saloon no later than eight o'clock tomorrow morning. No mines will work. Come wearing your guns, and be prepared to fight unto the death, defending the glorious Constitution of the United States. Signed, editorially yours, William D. Fitzgerald. I've literally never seen anything signed editorially yours. It is a little amusing. The miners of Silverload did not find it funny. They were going to rally to the cause and they were going to make their stand. This paper was also given down to the Mormons and the newly elected officials of Price, Utah. The miners responded. That night, old military uniforms were dug out of trunks, both blue and gray from the Civil War. 
They stood with each other. The Chinese workers who had helped build the railroad from California all the way to Promontory Point, Utah, where the Transcontinental Railroad was finished, they were standing there as well. There were ranchers and cowboys, both speaking English and Spanish. In order to increase the turnout, Will Fitzgerald essentially decided to give everyone who showed up at the White Horse a free meal and free drinks. Not drink, free drinks, plural. So there were a lot of people that came out. During that night, although there was gambling, there was no fighting. Everyone seemed to have put any differences or arguments aside. They were all waiting for the dawn. During that night, Will Fitzgerald waited. He was sure that someone from Price, Utah, someone from across the tracks would send word of parley to negotiate, to discuss this issue before dawn. The word did not come. Armed guards had been dispatched to patrol all of the roads leading between the two little towns. Some saboteurs were sent to cut the telegraph lines to Salt Lake City. A declaration of war was drawn up, threatening the Latter-day Saints, warning them that if the ban on gambling was not lifted by noon of the following day, a state of war would exist between Silverload and Addenville. All night long they waited, and all night long was silence. When the dawn broke, several hours before the deadline, no word had been sent. There was no response from the Latter-day Saints. So, they escalated. The main road between Silverload and Price City was blocked with a barricade. They tore out furniture. They dismantled some of the old buildings. There were carts and barrels, rocks. There were kegs of beer. Some empty, some being emptied as they were placed. And behind the barricade, the guns came out. And they waited. A chilling rain began. When the man on the fortifications complained, Uncle Will went from whiskey keg to whiskey keg, opening them up and offering more drinks to anyone that actually stood on the line. This produced more volunteers than the barricade could accommodate. Old musical instruments were pulled out. People that had no musical talent or ability whatsoever began playing drums, blowing on fifes. One man even drug one of the pianos out from the saloon, set it on the sidewalk behind the barricade, and began to drunkenly play what he assumed were patriotic songs. The defenders began to sing, Glory, Glory, Hallelujah! And if they didn't know the words, past glory, glory, hallelujah, they simply made them up. The local drunk, who was drunker than he'd ever been in his entire life, Windy Davis, pulled out a sword, began waving it, and shouted, Don't shoot until you see the whites of their eyes. And with that, he fell off the sidewalk, flat into his face in the mud, where he lay passed out until the battle was over. Five minutes before the deadline, one of the scouts a driver for the, the mining company, 
Butch Mears. Butch came running up. They're coming. They've got a white flag. Here they come. We're ready to fight. Will Fitzgerald ordered the entire group to respect the flag of truce, not to fire on the approaching men. Bishop Aiden showed up. He was easily the tallest man in the group, at well over six feet tall. He walks into the saloon, sits down in one of the few remaining chairs, the rest of which were on the barricade. And he said, we are men of peace and not violence. We have received your declaration of war and would like to talk terms of surrender. The order prohibiting gambling in this county is hereby rescinded. You may live and you may earn your money as you so choose. Uncle Will sensed weakness, so he pushed. He said, that's not enough. We have a petition signed by 3,000 people from our town and all of the other surrounding ones demanding that a new election be held under operating under the laws of the United States, that the expurgatory oath must be taken, and that the only voters be the ones that actually live in this county. Adden said, no, that's a step too far. Will responded that he had a thousand drunken miners ready to fight. Bishop Aiden then had a counterproposal. He asked Will directly, do you care what happens in our part of the town? Of course, Will said, no. I don't give a good goddamn what happens over there. I only want to be able to run my saloon and my business without your interference. Bishop Aiden replied, then we can make peace. We give you our word that all of the newly elected officials will not interfere with what happens in Silverload, and we will run our town the way we see fit without your interference. Judge Baker, who at that point was very, very drunk, he had been the former judge that was uh, ousted by the new, uh, the new party. He gave his opinion. He said that this would hold if and only if a special dispensation was given by the county officials that would grant Silverload its own jurisdiction over its own law enforcement. That he would remain judge, but only the judge for Silverload. He made a comment about not caring one bit what happened with the polygamists, whether they had multiple wives hiding under the beds, that he had no interest whatsoever in trying to adjudicate water rights or figuring out whose cow got loose and where the chickens were roosting in the different farms. The agreement was made, the bargain struck, both sides shook hands. Bishop Aiden and the sheriffs and the other Mormon elders went back across the tracks into Price, Utah. Will Fitzgerald went out into the town and proclaimed victory to his entire group. There was about a dozen people that cheered this victory. The rest had become so drunk and had been up for so many hours that they had already fallen asleep. It's probably a good thing that no battle was waged because they were not in any condition to fight one. I know that is the story of the Battle of Silverload.
It is probably exaggerated, although maybe not as much as you might think, because the, the Old West, especially in the areas where they were still territories, were actually like that. They did operate in that way. And there were a lot of disagreements that ended in bloodshed, and some that ended because they people just decided we're just going to leave each other alone. It's a good story, regardless. My name is Charles Chestnut. This has been Storied History. The next episode will be coming out in a few weeks, and it will be the second part of the history of Mexico. We get to cover the chaos that was the 19th century, uh, some of the bloodshed therein. And shortly after the chaos, the wonderful, fascinating, and romanticized stories about the Mexican Revolution, including the very famous, uh, slightly controversial, definitely romanticized, but always fascinating character of Pancho Villa. And that will come in a few weeks. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you again for your patience. This has been Story History with Charles Chestnut. Insert clever outgoing catchphrase here once you think of it.